0: So we're in a series. We're in a series called "The Problem of Truth," and we talked the first week about causality, and last week we talked about incentive. And basically, what we're really trying to get at here is that truth is not always in the shape that we we see it as. Um, it's not always visible to us. It doesn't always scream at it, us. It, it, it's. It's in all these kind of different things. And What we're really trying to do is say there's not a problem with truth. The problem is with um, truth is more difficult than we, we make it out to be. Um, and I started this week really thinking about uh, a phrase called the, the backside of good, which to me meant there's a lot of things that on the face look good or look Christian, but when you really shine a light on them, there's this backside to them it's unbelievable. CS Lewis taught me a ton about this, but love a lot of times what what's supposed to look like love is actually or can actually just masquerade as is self-love and selfishness. It's just very very paradoxical. I remember the first time this hit me, I was I was listening to a, a historical kind of sermon series on the the Christianity in the 1900s and just the different movements that kind of came through different revival movements, different um, camp meeting movements, just different kinds of movements, and it blew me away. The guy started talking about. You guys remember the Scopes trial in 1925? Scopes trial was the monkey trial. It was about evolution. It was it was really huge. Uh, William Jennings Bryan and and all these kinds of hotshot lawyers came down, and and you know Clarence Darrow was the the one arguing for the evolutionist high school teacher, and and you know it's this crazy thing. There was a movie made of it called Inherit the Wind. It was like one of the first movies ever on airplanes, even though they kind of flip-flopped a lot of the information. Um, the personalities of the two lawyers, they totally flip-flopped. Spencer Tracy, I think, became Clarence Darrow and, and all that. But this Scopes trial was a zoo. It was our, our version of a media circus back in 1925. And so in this small town, you have all of the, the newspapers, magazines, kind of reporters, all these things kind of crash around it. And you had all these Christian groups crashing around it as well, and it was, a, it was a circus. Well, this guy who was going through and talking about the history of Christian movements was talking about there was a, a bunch of campfire meetings, like Christian rallies um, around campfires outside of the city as a part of kind of that whole summer um, and, and the, tr- the kind of trial that was going on. And then he, he talked about this interesting thing Kind of as an aside, and that, that interesting thing just blew me away. But he said, um, he was analyzing the movement of the Christians there and saying, it was really a, an interesting thing because here you have ostensibly these Christians who are having these meetings and these meetings were really like uh, emotional, like a rave, you know, music and it's ecstatic and there's energy and there's all this vitality. And what he, what he said was, there's, there was this thing called campfire babies. And what that was, was if you looked at the birth rates, nine months after some of these campfire meetings, you saw this huge spike in the birth rates. And what he was basically alluding to was, for a lot of people, these campfire meetings were less about God, and they were... They were more like a rave, like an ancient Greek, I'll stop short of saying orgy, but but that kind of a, an emotional experience where you get caught up in what is happening, and it's again, it's not about God so much as it becomes about the experience, and then out of that, there's this backside of good. Does that make sense? And we can stand back at history and, and see the surface of a lot of these things and say, Bunch of people gathering together and calling it Christian. Good. And then you can look at the backside and say, wow, these things are sometimes more complex. And, and what seems to be going on on the surface is not always the same thing as what's really going on or, or, or really going on for all of the people there. And so this, this idea of the backside of good and what, but what I kind of morphed into, and I really want to just spend the next 20 minutes talking about is, is the idea of Redemption. Um, I think the greatest thing we can talk about on Sunday mornings is just the gospel. Um, but I want to I kind of try and play it out this way with regard to how we look at the surface of truth without really understanding the backside of good and what's really going on. And so I want to give you three levels. And the first level here is Action. We can do bad, we can, we can in some sense sin at the level of action, but this is just a real basic level. It's kind of like, oops, you know? I didn't, I didn't mean to, I mean, I, I said something bad about you without even thinking about it, it scorched you to a bunch of people, it turned into gossip, boy, I, it just, I didn't even really realize that was happening. I'm sorry, oops. We know that, right? Just mistakes. Some of them are, in the Old Testament, there was this category called sins of ignorance, you didn't even know you were sinning, and you, you messed something up, okay? Um, then there's this level of intention. I did mean to talk about you because I don't like you, uh, and I did want to hurt you, you know, and that was my motive. That was my intention. I, I sinned because I, I wanted to sin, and what happens with this is we, we injure others. We can injure others with our actions, but at this level, we are actually intentional, whether directly or indirectly, we're causing harm. Does that make sense? There's a third level. And this is our heart. It's not a broken action or a broken intention. It's we're broken, and it's a way of life. This is the fundamental wound in each person. This is is sin at the core. This is a deformed heart. This is what C.S. Lewis, I've said it before, in in the Space Trilogy, when you've got this this figure who he modeled after J.R. Tolkien, is on this planet that's never known sin. And so the language, uh, Tolkien was a linguist, by the way. Uh, When he was like hurt in World War II, like he created all these, he just would sit in the hospital and make up languages, if I'm remembering it right. World War I would have been when he got hurt. But he just would make up languages and grammars for like elves. I mean, he was a linguist, Tolkien was. Um, And so Lewis uses his friend, Tolkien, who, um, as this linguist, this character in this book, and... So here's this linguist in the book talking to these people that have a language and they don't have a word for sin because they don't have a category for it because nobody's broken. And so the, the word for sin that Lewis creates through the, the character of Tolkien for this language was bent. The people on that planet, the silent planet, the planet that no light comes out of because it, it's broken, it's a fallen planet, those people, they're bent. I love that. Um, we were created straight But that wound, that original sin, that whatever you want to call it, we're bent. Okay? Does that make sense? Three levels. In all of this, what the temptation, the great temptation is, is that we would make truth a category out here. Truth is, is who's right and who's wrong. Truth is a set of beliefs. Truth is um, things that we can put on paper. Truth is out here, and we're going to argue about it, and we're going to debate it, and we're going to try and figure out who's right and who's wrong, whose way is true, whose whose set of beliefs are true, and we're going to kind of put truth out here, and this isn't kind of the conversation when it comes to truth. So if you'll turn to John chapter 4, we'll kind of jump into Scripture and and see where it takes us. So John chapter 4. It's a, again, last week we used a very familiar passage of the rich young ruler, and we tried to look at it through this new lens. What I want to do is try and use the lens we're creating here to look at this parable or the story of the Samaritan woman. So John chapter 4, Jesus is, is heading north from Galilee, or, or north up from Judea um, to Galilee, and he's, he's going through Samaria. Now, to set the context, you had under King David, all of Israel was one kingdom. Then under Solomon, same thing, one kingdom, Solomon's son raises kind of taxes and slaves his people even more, and there's a break between the tribe of Judea and the northern tribes, northern Israel. And so you have... One tribe becomes kind of a nation unto itself, then you have where Jerusalem is, and then you have these northern tribes that kind of go a different way and so the, the line of David in this kingdom is kind of these kings. and they begin to go kind of a different way, and they're like kind of two nations almost. But what ends up happening is when um, God begins to discipline all of Israel for, for going astray, okay and we're going to get to discipline in a minute in a minute but when he begins to discipline them, first the northern kingdoms are scattered and taken captive. And then later, this group is, is, is taken captive, marched in a line, and they go um, kind of off to, to Babylon, okay, to Iraq. What happens is after they come back, after a period of, of these tribes kind of being taken out, this tribe that comes back to Jerusalem remains more pure. They got taken away later. um, They're brought back a little bit more intact, and they have Jerusalem there. And the northern tribes end up becoming a little bit more of a half-breed kind of a thing. It's it's no longer kind of this this Old Testament Hebrew kind of pure um, faith that this tribe would maintain, but it becomes this more kind of diffuse kind of um, different cross-pollinated kind of an idea. And so they end up worshiping somewhere different and, and there's a divide between the two and these people down here worship in Jerusalem and, and they're, diff- they're, they're different now. They're not the same people anymore. And cousins fight in some sense a lot more intensely than strangers do if you've ever noticed that, you know. And so these two tribes, or these two sections, the Samarians kind of above, and then, and then the, the, those from Judea down below, um, are not, they don't get along. And so people from Judea would actually go over the hills and come up this other way to the northern areas, and you've got Samaria kind of in the middle. Jesus is going through Samaria. Without being crass or whatever, In the modern day example would be pick a religion that you don't feel comfortable with and just think, you know, you'd probably tend to go around it than to go right through the heart of it. You know, most of you wouldn't want to go through the heart of Iran, or at least not if you're a hiker, right? Um, but, but I mean, it's just not it's just not typically how it's done. But Jesus is just plowing right through the middle of it and so... Here's, here's kind of the thing, and he comes to this well, and it's midday, and it's hot. His disciples go off, and they're going to go looking for food. Jesus sits down at the well, and then picking it up, chapter 4, verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus is there, and Jesus says, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? In the subtitle in the text here is, For Jews Don't Associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So you get this first kind of idea of, on the surface, the woman knows cultural conventions. Look, at the surface level, we don't mix here. Why are you even bothering with me? Why are you talking to me? And Jesus says, if you really knew what was going on beneath the surface, that, that I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that, that I'm the this, this source of, of life. Jesus says, I came in John 10.10 10, to give people life and to give them life to the full. And if, if you knew who I was, you'd be coming after me as a, 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 as a desirable object a desirable person. So if you really knew that, you'd be coming hard at me. And the woman says this, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also his sons and his flocks and his herds? So Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask for water. And she's fixated on the water bit. And she says, okay, water... Like, you don't even have anything to, to draw with. The second ago, you were asking me for water. Um, how are you going to do that? How are you going to be in control of a well that needs something to be dropped down into it to get water? Can you, like, you know, make water jump out of the well? Are you greater than the person that dug the well? And, and she's focused on the water, and Jesus answers, and he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst, and indeed, the water I give will become to him a spring of water welling up. To eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming down here to draw water. In some sense, now she's engaging Jesus and saying, Okay, I don't understand what you're talking about, but it sounds good, so if you can give it, I'll take it. I mean, it's just pretty simple, right? And Jesus says, Okay, go call your husband and come back. You just asked me to give you the living water. Go get your household, go get your people, go get your covenant community, um, go get that and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, here's where I think we usually butcher this this story. As we go right on to, you know, the next words out of the woman's mouth are, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And then we kind of continue right on. If this was a movie and there was a soundtrack going on behind Jesus and this woman, and you get to this point where Jesus says, Go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, Yeah, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. In the movie visual as you're watching it, the woman doesn't immediately go, oh, sure, okay, so you must be a prophet. Like she stops and the music kind of does its thing and she, everything just changed. This conversation just changed. My day just changed. My my understanding of what's going on just changed. And she steps back and she recalibrates and says, this conversation just went to a new place and who you are in my eyes just changed and I'm I don't know what's going on anymore. We're not talking about water anymore. I mean, everything changes. So when she comes back, the story is different. And she comes back. Okay. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Um, I don't know you. I've never seen you. I'm pretty sure you've never seen me. I don't know how you would know that. You're a traveler. People in my town know that about me? I don't know how you'd know. I I can see that you're a prophet. And then she says this. If you're a prophet, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. The Samaritans worship here. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Okay, you just told me about myself. So who's right? My clan worships here, you Jews worship there, if you're really from God, you really know these things, who's right? So she immediately goes, Jesus just exposed this, you got, you got a broken life, your life's broken, it's messy, and Jesus just surfaced this deep, hidden identity issue, and she immediately says, if you're a prophet, let's talk truth. Who's right? Are the Protestants right or the Catholics? The Baptists right or the, the free will Methodists? Are the Charismatics right? So if you're really someone from God, let's talk truth. Who's right? Are the Muslims right? Are the Christians right? And Jesus answers her this way He says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Then the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain all this stuff to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus doesn't say, he says they're both wrong yet the Jews are more right. You know what I mean? Like A, B, no, 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 C. You know what I mean? He doesn't say they're right, you're wrong. He says, look, there's coming a time when when both of you are gonna understand that it's not about where you worship. It's not about actions. It's not about postures. It's not about surface things. It's gonna come a time when that's not what's going on, okay? But by the way, salvation is from the Jews, God is is written in scriptures and he's unrolling his plan and nothing's changed. Okay, I who speak am the one who was promised, I was promised because God has always known what he was doing in this story. Okay, so uh, who's right, who's wrong? Neither, although, you know, option C, the Jews in some sense worship what they know, you worship what you don't know. But here's the idea. It's gonna be in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is going down here and he's saying, at the heart level, at the core level, not six foot two, not brown hair, not blue eyes, not a certain color of skin, but at the heart level, at at the spirit level, you're gonna worship in spirit, by the spirit, not by location, by by, by what's core to you. So, over here, Jesus is saying, there's gonna be a time when there's a different kind of heart because that's the kind of worshipers that God desires. Well, how does that happen? Uh, I want to take two passages real quick and show them to you. So, Romans first. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He's talking about God's judgment, okay? And he says he's talking about the Jews, and he's talking about the Gentiles, the non Jews, kind of just like Jesus is dealing with both categories. In verse 8 of chapter 2 of Romans, but those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, okay, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But then there's going to be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It's not those who hear what's true, but it's those who obey what's true that will be declared righteous. And this is in verse 14 what he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law Jesus said salvation comes from the Jews. Okay? Jesus is saying they know something you don't know. And, and Paul is saying the exact same thing. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles, those who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences, also bearing witness, And their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. And this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my my gospel declares. Paul's talking about there's everybody. There's two groups within that everybody. One group knows more of the story. And there's another group that doesn't know as much of the story. But he says, look, it doesn't matter. What's The ones that don't even know the story, they're wrong, are yet right. How do you have untruth yet be true? And and Paul's saying if they, without even kind of knowing it, still get it at this heart level and show on their hearts that it's kind of written there, then they will be either blessed or not blessed depending on it. Now the Jews who know this but don't do this are the first to get judged. I, I was talking to a friend recently who was accused one time of being a universalist. A universalist is someone who doesn't believe that there's a hell, that everybody will someday, everybody will end up in heaven. And his answer to the person that was accusing him of being a universalist was, he says, I know too many Christians that are going to hell to not believe in hell. I know too many Christians that are good on the face of it, but the backside of good is really interesting because there's nothing over here. I know too many Christians going to hell to not believe in hell. The Jews will be judged first. See, you you weren't judged. The Jews didn't get the pass and the non-Jews are judged. It's that both categories are judged by something different than Jewishness. We Christians don't get a pass because we say we're Christians, and those that aren't Christians get judged. It's all of us together are judged by something different than our Christianness. What is that thing? If it's confusing, give me a second. We'll make a little more sense of it. So, Acts chapter 2, Peter is now. This is right after they received the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus was prophesying about and saying to this woman, the day is going to come where it's not this mountain, not that mountain, but it's in spirit and in truth, that day is coming right here. So Peter and the disciples have been waiting. The Holy Spirit comes. This is the day Jesus was talking about. And listen to what Peter does. He, he preaches about Jesus, and he says that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father, verse 33. Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 33 was exalted to the right hand of God and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. And he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive then the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for for all who are far off. Jesus said, there will come a day when you, the Samaritans and the Jews, it's neither mountain, it's in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. He wants you to worship in spirit. Peter just said if you will repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit because your sins have been forgiven. This promise is not just for you Jews, but for who all who are far off. Some woman by a well in Samaria is waiting for this. So repent and be baptized this is the gospel. We who are, are sinners, while we were broken, while we couldn't fix something fundamentally wrong in us, the Titanic had a rip underneath the water line that, that could not be fixed in the midst of being in the middle of the ocean. On a dry dock, maybe. In the middle of it, no. And we are broken in the midst of life, and there's nowhere we can get out of and refix our heart and then insert ourselves we can't fix ourselves and, and so we who are broken while we're broken Christ died for us and when we realize that we repent and are baptized in his name And then we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can have our sins forgiven. What is broken is fixed. What is bent is made straight. What was unrighteous is now declared righteous because Christ died for our sins. And so this word repent is right here. Do you know what repent means? There's two two ideas here to this word and the one, the one is a turning around. So it's, you're going this way, and there's literally, it's an active thing. There's literally a turning around and going a different way. It's a guy finally saying to his wife, maybe I'm lost. Okay? There's, there's a, a moment, and then there's a turning based on, on what you that repentance. The other idea here is the idea of regret. So, Underneath repentance is this idea of regret. And so there's a a sense of sorrow. There's a sense of regret. I say sorry when it's authentic, at least. I say sorry to people when I regret that what I said just hurt you. I, I, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I could take it back. You know what? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And we are going our own way. Not one seeks God it says all have gone astray. There's no one righteous, no one who naturally seeks God. We all seek our own self stuff. We've all gone astray and when we recognize that we're like ah. You know what? I don't I can't worship God in spirit and in truth. Why? Because my my core exalts itself and my truth is truth out here that's easy to kind of put on a piece of paper or on uh, a tablet of virtues it's not really an integrity or an authenticity or a wholeness down here because I'm, i'm bent it's broken it's messy Um, I can't really worship God. He's white paint. I'm gray paint. You mix gray with white, it's not white anymore. I can't mix with God. God's pure and I'm not. God's holy and I'm not. Um, Man, who I am as a sinner needs fixing. And I do wrong and I create wrong and I am wrong wrong. And so you know what, God, I (laughs) repent of that. I regret all the silly, stupid things I do to kind of gratify self, that that have self as the object, worshiping myself, glorifying myself. I regret all that. I mean, I do it so easily, but I don't want that. Will you forgive me for for the sin that, that, that is so deep within me? Can I can you take what Jesus did and buy me back? Wash me up, make me clean, consider me pure in your eyes so that over here, I can now mix with you. So we all of a sudden understand what Jesus was doing was redemption. And the word redemption, if you look at it, simply means to buy back. God is fixing us. He's taken what he created initially that is now bent or broken and through Jesus Christ, he's taken that and renewing and restoring it, reconciling us to himself. We have been redeemed out of this over here to somewhere new. This is truth according to Jesus. Jesus never wanted to debate with the Pharisees because their whole notion of truth never really got to where truth really resides. And Jesus always wanted to talk about the heart or or the essence of a thing, the identity of a thing. And, And he's saying, look, if you're gonna worship, there's gonna come a time where it's gonna have to be In spirit and in truth, there's a wholeness, there's a purity, and now this is the kind of worshiper God wants. Why? Because this kind of worshiper is aimed at the glory of God. He's aimed at worshiping God, not just using truth to justify self. The next thing up is fruit, and then the next thing up is action, and so there's A newness, Jesus says to to this guy that knows all about truth and is arguing with Jesus, and Jesus says, unless you're reborn, unless you're born again, and the guy's like, what do you mean? Crawl up again into a mother's womb and then be, yeah, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, and you don't get it. You have to be born again by the Spirit, made new again by what God is gonna do, by God redeeming you. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. God saves sinners. Repentant sinners who desire to be over here. And so when God redeems us, Jesus is saying, you're born again, you're made new. That's the imagery of baptism. So Peter says, repent and be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Be made whole, be made new again. Become a Christian, a follower of Christ. This is true. All the way deep down, that's, that's the kind of truth. And so when that happens, Paul then says the fruit of that spirit is good things, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, mercy, faithfulness, self-control, good things, character things. He also says good fruit doesn't come from a bad tree. He's like you know somebody's heart, you know what's true by the fruit Because if this is bad, it produces bad. And if this is good, it produces good over time. And so this is a renewal, a redemptive, uh, a redeemed heart. And then that spirit is going to bring about this kind of fruit, which eventually will lead to a kind of truth. Jesus says, you know what? They will know you are my disciples by your love for each other. You know what Jesus was saying? When you guys are my disciples, what's eventually going to come is going to look a lot different. And that love for each other that is pure, that comes from from truth, people are going to see that. And they're going to know what kind of people you are, that you follow me. Truth becomes, in some sense, incarnate. It became incarnate in Jesus. Jesus lined up, was, in, was genuine, was authentic, meshed with all that was true of God and true of the way God created the world. And what Jesus is saying is when we're down here and we're made new again and we begin to kind of follow that, the more we become like him, we too become genuine and authentic and, and it begins to incarnate truth. Truth is made manifest in kind of who we are. And it's a type of truth that the world will see and go, that's true. And so I had a high school group one time when I was a youth pastor and they fought all the time and we were supposed to have this little breakout session where we role played. And I, I played devil's advocate and they were supposed to tell me about truth and all of them were over here. And I just said, you know what? Doesn't your Bible say that your love will tell me whether or not you're true, whether you're authentic, whether, whether you belong to God? Isn't that what your Bible says? And they were like, yeah. And I said, well, the Mormons look a lot more like God loves them than you guys do. And I just started playing devil. You know, you know what, there's, there's a couple of atheist friends I know that, man, they love each other. They look a lot more true than you do. And what's going on is, is we begin to realize that we don't get a pass just because we say we're Christians or call ourselves Christians, and the non-Christians, they're the ones that get judged. But it's the whole thing, Jew, non-Jew, Christian, non-Christian, it's what's true here. It's what's true here that really has to do with whether you're righteous or not. And the righteous isn't because you're perfect. The action, again, is a consequence, it's a byproduct of this. And this is a byproduct of Christ dying for your sins and redeeming you or me or us. Does that make sense? And so what we begin to realize is the problem of truth isn't all about arguing ideas, but at the core, it has to do with the gospel. It's a lot easier for us to argue ideas, but truth, the problem of truth is it's so much deeper than that. It requires something totally different. It requires a different way of seeing it. It requires repentance and regret and turning and accepting. It requires the sacrifice of God's own son that we could take and fix the hole beneath the water that we of ourselves could not possibly hope to fix. And when we do that, and we're no longer going our own way, we're going a different way. I mean, literally everything is different about our way of life. Our North Star, our compass, It's all different because why that act of repentance literally turned us about face does that make sense how do you become a christian when we really mean christian in the right sense it's the same as what peter said on the day of pentecost you want to become a Christian, you want the blessing, you want the joy, you want to be with God, you want to be able to be the kind of worshiper he desires, you want to become a Christian, you want to be like Christ, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus' name that he might send the Holy Spirit to kind of keep changing you. It's like that dirty dish with dirty water, like I, do, I rarely do dishes, I'm my wife always tells me, you shouldn't talk bad about yourself. Um, it's too, too easy, evidently. Um, I do dishes enough to know this. There's like the dirty dish with the dirty water, and you begin putting the clean water on it, and then you watch it, you know, and it gets more and more clean. You know what I'm talking about? The guys are like that don't do dishes enough are like, yeah, I saw that. I know that. I've done that once, you know. That's called Regeneration. It's called sanctification. It's it's a process of God making us new over time because when we are here, we're we're justified. God takes the broken thing and says, even though I, I could judge you, I now consider you just in my eyes because of what Jesus did. You're justified. You can be over here. I will send my spirit. My spirit will sanctify you. He will wash and continue to wash you with that water. And so more and more of the garbage goes out and more and more of the clean water comes in and you will be sanctified. And in that process, there's gonna be fruit of the Spirit. What the Spirit is doing here will show itself in your character. Why is it so important that leaders of churches have character? Because it shows that they're true. Paul in Timothy and Titus is like, man, I'm gonna tell you how you should pick leaders of churches by the way they dress, by the cars they drive, like Bentleys. You know, the, you know by this, by how, by how cool, how funny are, the sports, how big they are, I don't know. Um, it's not what he says at all. It's character, 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 character. They have to be able to teach, and what they mean by that is, is like as a teacher, and their life shows it, which is actually more character-ish than what we make it when we kind of talk about it. But character, 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 character. Because if they're true and somebody worth following, there's going to be fruit so that you know that that's the kind of shepherd that you should have. And Jesus said over and over again, beware of the bad shepherd. Beware of the false shepherd. Beware of the, the one who comes in and wants you to follow, but, but their whole way of life, it might have an appearance of truth about it. But, but there's not the fruit. There's not the character there that you need to look for before you sign on. And so we're justified, and then God, God does this. God saves sinners. God justifies us because of Christ. Now the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. God's doing that too. And then someday when we're with God, and this is the joy, okay, man? This is where the light bulb comes on. When we go to be with God, the big tag of that is called glorification. Justification, sanctification, sanctification. Glorification Glorification literally means that it really finds its way home. When we go to be with God, God's excited to see us. He doesn't want to send us away from his presence. He wants us to be right there with him in his presence where his glory is, and we're able to share in that. How do you become a Christian? You recognize, and this is where the Puritans, they get a bad rap. The Puritans got this, and they're like, it all starts, not with me, Doing anything. It starts with me recognizing my own sinfulness and regretting all of that and that I'm broken. I don't want to be broken. And saying, you know what? I'm willing to turn about face 180 degrees, go a different direction, be a different kind of person. We kind of throw ourselves up to Jesus and say, I I repent. I give up. My regrets have put me in front of you. Change me. Make me, do, make me new, redeem me, buy me back, reconcile me, restore me to God where I was created to be. And that begins a process that will continue itself out. So where do those, I mean, do, do you see the real irony here? We focus on that. The bulk of our time, and, and this is just natural, this is human instincts, whatever. The bulk of our time we spend on judging people's actions and debating truth. Now, Jesus didn't back up on propositional truth. Remember, he's like, yeah, by the way, Jews had it right, you had it wrong, but that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? He didn't back up on propositional truth. But we Christians have to avoid getting in the habit of running around judging action and debating truth and never realizing that the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is with each individual sinner. Repenting, turning, being redeemed to be a different kind of person that goes a different kind of direction. And over here, truth still matters. But we care more about incarnate truth. And we care more about love. And we care more about looking like Christ, being whole Sinking up well with God, and God is all about redemption, which is coming from a heart of grace. And so, when we have been transformed by that, the truth that we manifest to people is going to look like it has been seasoned with grace. And so, we won't back up on doctrine, we won't back up on scripture. But our focal point isn't winning a debate or judging somebody's actions. Our our whole point is we now, Paul says, you've been given that ministry of reconciliation. You get to go out and help call people into this life. So our whole focus over here now is going out seasoned with grace and saying, man, I see somebody that I can help redeem. There's, There's a redemptive quality in them I want to take that part I'd love for them to experience redemption I want to buy it back I want them to be reconciled to God I want them to be renewed I want them to be restored and we get uber excited about people in this town around the world wherever oh and I got to close down now (laughs) um yeah okay uh Maybe this is the whole point is not to make it super motivational speech time, but if you want to become a Christian, I'd love to talk to you. If you want to become a Christian, it's really simple. Just turn, repent. If you want to become a Christian, God is desperately longing to reach out, to grab you, to redeem you, to to let you know his grace, to wash you, to make you new. If you want to be saved, there's a God who excels in the business of saving sinners. God saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot make ourselves new. Only you can do that. Let this be a church filled with Christians who look a lot like Christ. Let us experience grace because grace begets grace just like love begets love. And we want everything we do to be saved.